Hello, thank you guys so much for clicking this video today. This is the Cardano Aura podcast. In the Cardano Aura podcast, I bring anybody that I feel is bringing a lot of value to the Cardano ecosystem. And today, I'm very excited to have John O'Connor on the podcast. He is actually the director of African operations for Input Output Global. Thank you so much for coming on today, John. Thank you so much to have, for having me. And thank you, everyone in the community for tuning in today. You know, I wanted this podcast to really be a general introduction to what Cardano is doing in Africa and why. I feel that we're in one of those user acquisition phases where there's many new eyes, you know, coming to Cardano because of, you know, the launch of smart contracts on September 12th. So, you know, my first question for you is, you know, why Cardano and what is Cardano's goal in Africa? So Cardano's goal in Africa is for me a really good microcosm and representation of the broader goal, which is providing economic identity for those people that don't have it. So the reason why Africa has always made a lot of sense to me as a beachhead for our broader efforts are because the problems that we're trying to solve are more poignant in Africa than most other continents. Um, people lack forms of formal identity. Uh, people lack the ability to transact and transfer value. Um, so, you know, the whole concept of Cardano, building this new decentralized financial system that's fairer, faster and cheaper uh, than the traditional financial system. Well, it's needed more in Africa than almost anywhere else. Given that Africa lacks these legacy systems, you know, the needs and the desire and the upside for new systems like Cardano is much greater. So this is what it's about for us. Cardano is all about creating economic identity for those people that don't have them. Well, often that's the case in Africa. So that's sort of why we started there um, with our regional rollout strategy. Yeah, and, and that's incredible. You know, I, I've also spoken to, you know, many others uh, about, you know, Africa and, and why Africa. And another thing that they mentioned too is, you know, the exponential growth that you can get there, you know, relative to the infrastructure that hasn't built yet or been built yet. Whereas in the United States, you know, if you provide economic freedom for people, well, we already have the infrastructure here. So you're not going to have this, you know, exponential growth that really will change a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And this, this, Sorry, I was just going to say that this really comes back to the, you know, the concept of what's the marginal benefit? What's the marginal utility of these systems? Um, and in Africa, you know, the upside is much greater for adopting them. So we were speaking about, you know, Africa has uh, exponential growth relative to the lack of infrastructure there, you know, and uh, a recent Coindesk article was actually, you know, posted and they brought up this idea of crypto colonialism and actually mentioned mm -hmm. IOG in that article. You know, can you explain what that article was trying to state and, and really your response to that? Yeah, yeah, I think the article's sort of key point is that you have big tech companies um, predominantly led by white founders uh, who are using Africa as a sort of testing ground. And not just that it's a testing ground, but also that there's like an element of, you know, colonialism there, that there's some sort of extraction of value um, from Africa towards Western countries. 
it's a difficult article for me to even summarize because it's wrong on so many layers. Uh, you, you know, it, yeah. So one of the one of the challenges is that it, it's also sort of saying that um, what we're we're supporting is like autocratic leaders being able to control the data and snoop on their users. Um, and this is fundamentally a misunderstanding of the privacy by design concepts that our identity solutions are built on. You know, Impa Alpa has no visibility of this data. Uh, you know, the user gets to share this data with those parties that, that it chooses to. So really what we built is a privacy protecting system compared to traditional data systems, but it's being misconstrued as some sort of dystopian future. Um, the other element is that you know, we're building decentralized systems here. So the people who are going to benefit from these systems are are not going to be, um, you, know, uh, you know, white people in the U.S. necessarily, right? It's going to be the developers which are building these systems and we're encouraging developer adoption in the countries that we're working on. So, you know, we're setting up uh, venture capital vehicles. We have the Catalyst program. I'm running developer training courses in Ethiopia and in Ghana. So, you know, it's very difficult to sort of match what that article was trying to portray with the reality of what we're doing. Um, the other side of it is that, you know, I'm half Irish, I'm half Ethiopian. Uh, I moved to Ethiopia to be able to build these technologies and, you know, improve the livelihoods of a country that I'm passionate about. So it just doesn't quite fit. You know, they're trying to put put a round peg in a square hole here. And it's it's also easy press and publicity, isn't it? So, yeah, that that's sort of my, my feeling about the article. I wasn't really thoroughly impressed. Yeah, I wasn't either. And I appreciate your response to that and kind of just laying that to rest because, you know, all these new people coming in and, you know, Coindesk is a, a reputable company and they see that article, you know, as Cardano mm. is people are first learning about it. You know, you mentioned a couple of things in there that I would like to educate the audience on more. You mentioned decentralized identities and also Atala Prism. You know, what what are DIDs mm. and, you know, what is Atala Prism? So um, Atala Prism is our implementation of, um, yeah, what we call DIDs, which are decentralized identities. So really what this enables you to do is to share securely um, things and facts and verifiable claims about yourself. So, you know, to give an example of what a verifiable claim might be, it might be that I got, you know, a 2-1 in my degree at this university. So what we'd go and do is that we'd associate that verifiable claim with my identity, and then we could essentially take a hash of that degree certificate and stick that on the blockchain. What this would mean is I could later share my digital degree with an employer. He could then compare the hash with what's on the blockchain and check that it's actually a real degree. So really what the whole did movement is about is this self-sovereign identity movement, which is facts and information about me are in my control. I can choose to share those with other people and they can then verify that those things actually happen by comparing them you know, with the blockchain. So that's the sort of idea. We're shifting away from all of the facts about myself being held by third party companies like Experian towards them being held by me and me being able to share them with a financial provider or a loan provider uh, as I so choose. So it's, yeah, it's, it's almost a revolutionary concept in terms of how we manage identities, but it's incredibly powerful and it's gaining widespread adoption very quickly. 
Yeah, and and I agree with you completely. And a lot of people, you know, especially in first world countries, don't really see the value of DIDs. And it's because they don't understand how the internet works. You know, when we actually just purchase a pizza from someone, you know, we give them our name, our email, our address, and, you know, we give them all of this data. And this data has to, you know, be somewhere on a server. And, you know, what people don't know is that all of these servers are hacked. There is no way to build a server that is unhackable, right? Mm-hmm. So you have social security numbers that are leaked, names, email addresses, all the time from you know the largest financial institutions in the United States. You know, so with decentralized identities, you know the value that this actually gives to people in first world countries is you can essentially sign something, you know, just as you would send a transaction, and when you sign it, it states that it's you without the other party actually getting all of your information. You know, it's it's revolutionary. Yeah. So, you know, one of the applications for sort of self-sovereign identity, which makes sense in a Western context, is the idea of a credit score. If I want to open a bank account or apply for an insurance policy in the UK, um, my credit score is being checked multiple times. And there's essentially a black mark left on my credit score uh, if too many people are checking it continuously. So wouldn't it make a lot more sense to have the credit score done once? That'd be issued to me as one of these verifiable claims. And then for me to be able to share that with many different providers if they're interested in it. And let's say now that actually one company doesn't want to accept another person's credit score reading of mine. Well, actually, what we could do is have them query my identity with some sort of algorithm. And I choose whether or not that information is to be shared. And this is sort of one of the things which, you know, zero knowledge proofs, which is something you hear about a lot come in, right? What about if they could ask certain questions and get, you know, maybe yes or no responses? So what's really relevant? They want to know, am I over 18? So they can query that and it returns yes. What I don't want them to know is exactly how old I am. And you can take this concept across many different other pieces of your data. So we come up with this idea of privacy preserving, um, potentially reducing the number of times you have to have your your credit checked. Uh, So yeah, there's also just an efficiency element, an efficiency saving, which is what I'm trying to sort of get at. Yeah, and you know, speaking about autoloprism and decentralized identities, this is a great segue into my next question. You know, earlier you mentioned that you're half, half Ethiopian. Well, a few months ago, you know, IOG partnered with the Ethiopian government to actually onboard 5 million users, you know, using Atala Prism. You know, hearing that you're half Ethiopian, uh, it makes the story so much more inspiring, you know. So can you just tell us, you know, kind of from the beginning, you know, how this came about? So, you know, my original role was head of strategy at the Cardano Foundation when I joined the project about five years ago. So after a while, I was more interested in starting to work on the adoption side. How do we drive real world utility for um, the, the technologies that we're building? So I pitched Charles to set up the Africa business. And about three and a half, four years ago, I moved to Ethiopia to look for opportunities for us to use the technology. So initially, I was focused on payments. Uh, I was really interested to see whether we could build a remittance business or something like that. Uh, But quickly, I realized that actually identity was the thing we needed to start with. It's foundational for all of the other things that we want to do around remittance, um, around transactions, around transfers of value. So that's where we started. Um, We built out the Atala Prism solution. 
to be able to support these kind of use cases. And then we did a landmark deal with the Ethiopian Ministry of Education, which is, you know, 5 billion users, 5 billion identities, and I think the largest deal of its type. So yeah, you know, it's a great moment for us. It's really just the beginning. Uh, since doing this deal, we've had a ton of interest from other countries across the continent and outside of Africa, all looking to replicate the solution or use it in different areas. So yeah, it's, it's been a great success and you know, we're very close to actually implementing it now and going live. So was that you know, kind of a before and after you know, scenario for the you know, operations in Africa? You know, once you guys actually made that deal, uh, did the phone mm-hmm. start blowing up? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing you've got to realize is that uh, no country really wants to go first. And that makes sense to me. You know, ultimately, people want to de-risk the implementation of any major technology um, stack. So for years, I had a lot of different countries and ministries saying, yeah, we're really, really interested, um, but not wanting to take the plunge. So, yeah, since we've actually got the deal, uh, it's been a very different scenario. Yeah. And, and, and that's incredible. You know, hearing that deal, uh, I was actually, you know, moving to Florida and hearing that I was in a U-Haul. And um, I, I mean, I stopped. I pulled over on the side of the road to record a video to release this news because, you know, this is what, you know, you've been trying to accomplish for years. And it just happened it's seemingly, you know, the perfect moment. Uh, how long will it take to, you know, roll this out to these 5 million users? And, you know, when will these users actually start interacting with the blockchain? That should be done by the end of the year. So I think December for the issuance uh, on chain, maybe it goes to like January. But uh, yeah, we're looking at a relatively reasonable time frame. And then after that, you know, the idea is potentially we can extend across the educational system. There's going to be a bid out at some point for the national identity program in Ethiopia for 110 million. So we'll be bidding on that. So yeah, great extension possibilities from from this sort of beginning. Yeah, that would be awesome if you guys really did take up the uh, national identity for Ethiopia. Um, You know, my next question for you is, you know, are there more countries in Africa, you know, that you're planning to make partnerships with, you know, after they've seen this in Ethiopia? So we're doing a roadshow in October. So Charles and myself and uh, a few other people from the IA team will be going around. I think we're on seven or eight countries at the moment. Uh, we're meeting with, you know, sort of top level officials, either senior government officials, presidents, that kind of thing, um, who are all interested in seeing more about our identity solution. Um, some of them are interested in central bank digital currencies. Some of them are interested in remittance and you know microfinance opportunities. So really what I've been trying to do is to start to put together a toolbox of what blockchain can do for you as a nation state. You know, this is one of the core linchpins of my strategy is being able to talk to governments uh, in, a serious, in a serious fashion about digital transformation through blockchain. Um, and you know, I think in the space, we have more credibility on that than a lot of the other players. So yeah, that's that's what we've been working on, you know, getting our collateral ready, our demos ready to be able to really put our best foot forward with some of these conversations. Yeah. So, you know, earlier, I didn't mean to uh, skip, but, you know, you mentioned that they'll actually be interacting with the blockchain by the end of the mm. year. 
How is that actually done? You know, you mentioned earlier, is it essentially just a hash that's stored in metadata on the chain? I know that's a little bit of a technical question, but I'm just curious on like the interactions, you know, is it done once and then it's stored for good? Or is there like updates over time as like grades come in, you know, because you mentioned it was with education. Yeah, so uh, we've defined what the verifiable claims or credentials are, and these can be updated. So you might get, um, you know, your end of year exam results would be one of the things you might want to do, or your degree for your university. What you're not going to do is all of the minutiae of like what I got on that homework, right? Um, because there's also transaction fees essentially when, when you're storing this data. So we picked what's important and the things that people will actually want to be able to prove. Frankly, when I'm applying for a job, I don't think anyone really cares about what I got on, you know, the 13 piece of calculus homework that I got in one year, right? But what they do care about is what my end of year exam results were. So that's the kind of thing we've done. We've uh, split out what, what's important uh, for people going forward. So you mentioned this, you know, toolbox of tools for blockchain that governments can use. You know, what is in your toolbox? You know, now we, we've seen this uh, with, you know, decentralized identities. And also, as you just mentioned, you know, relative to education, you know, what are some other tools that are really at the forefront of what you're you know, offering to these governmental leaders? So, yeah, when it comes towards the sort of toolbox that we approach governments with, um, the foundation, as I say, is digital identity. And there can be extensions into education like we've done, uh, health records, um, financial, um, financial KYC. And then this sort of leads into the second thing, which is microfinance and reducing the cost of loans. So with all of this crypto liquidity we have, if we can connect that up to real people, smallholder farmers, SMEs, and to be able to offer them a lower cost of finance than they get on the local markets, offer a really attractive rate of finance to your international ADA holder, then it's a win-win for both parties. And that's very attractive for governments who often have very small pots of capital in their local, um, in their local loan markets. After that, one new thing that we're starting to look at is bond issuance. So can a country actually issue guilt, sovereign debt, directly to diaspora that they have across the world? And can we manage that, you know, through maybe crypto payment rails and digital uh, identities? Define diaspora. You said, can they issue... Diaspora, that? sorry. Yeah, so diaspora are all of the people who've left your country. So in Ethiopia, you've got a country of 110 million people. I think you've got about 10 million Ethiopians like living across the world and like maybe six or seven million in the USA. So that's your diaspora community. Um, the people who have left, um, but still obviously are very interested in their country of origin. So, you know, with those bonds, you said that they issue debt to those people that are interested in the country. Can you explain that? Sure. So the way that typically um, a government would issue guilt, or guilt is a government debt, sovereign debt. So the way in which they do that is they create like a bond note. They'd say, look, we want to issue $500 million worth of debt to be able to go and build this thing. And then what they do is they go and they syndicate that through a merchant bank or an investment bank like Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs might say, all right, we're going to buy all of this up and then we're going to resell this. So you've got these like investment banks that sit in the middle and they do do services. But one of the interesting ideas which we've got is can a government directly issue bonds towards its diaspora communities 
uh, for maybe smaller packages. Let's say that the government wants to do something that's going to cost like $75 million to be able to build this municipal set of bridges. Well, you know, with the idea of the digital identity and the blockchain stuff we're doing, maybe they could directly issue those bonds and they could have diaspora in the United States buy those bonds directly because really it's just a transfer of value. So they could do this. They could have much lower issuance costs and they could also directly build these relationships with their expatriate communities um, rather than having to have like investment banks sit in the middle. So this is an idea that we're exploring and it's obviously quite attractive from a nation state perspective to be able to directly raise rather than have to syndicate at very large costs to investment banks. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that great explanation. I do understand it now. You know, this kind of sparked a thought, you know, as you're working with these countries, uh, you know, the way the world works is the opposite of what we believe the world, you know, ought to work. So when you're speaking with, you know, these governments, uh, do they often focus a lot on, you know, centralization? You know, what you guys are trying to do is, you know, bring people up from the ground, but at the same time, you know, include decentralization or another good example is world mobile, you know, so from the ground, they're including encryption. Mm. So we're trying to, you know, build a better world. But when you're working with these governmental leaders, you know, do they ever kind of put a full stop, you know, kind of, kind of saying, Hey, you know, you're trying to, you know, remove power from central control. Uh, when in reality, that's the exact opposite of what we want. Yes. Sometimes there is a bit of a, you know, a conflict between, centralizing tendencies from governments and some of the technologies that we're building. I think the first thing to say is that you shouldn't be too much of an ideologue. Frankly, the fact that governments are starting down a path of digital transformation and including blockchain is really a massive step forward and something that many people wouldn't have seen years ago. Then you combine with the fact that it takes a while for people to get used to systems. So is it okay if parts of the system are still centralized, if parts of it are actually decentralized? Well, that's a trade that I would accept, given the fact that I believe we're heading in the right direction. So, you know, for me, you've got to also live in the art of the possible. Uh, we're doing amazing things. The space is changing so quickly. Uh, so, of course, I think it's fair that governments have an education period where they get used to things and they get comfortable with it. Yeah. And, and I agree with that completely. You know, I mean, even Cardano is inherently centralized until we have Voltaire completely out. And there's a lot, there's huge advantages to that. You know, we can all, you know, kind of move at a faster momentum uh, because of that. But I was really kind of speaking about, you know, malicious intent, really, and not just centralization. Mm. You know, have, have you spoken with governmental leaders that, you know, it seems that there is some malice there? You know, in, in these technologies that you're building, you know, do are there are they trying to use these technologies for control? You know, have you ever ran into that? I think a lot about this. Um, you know, hopefully not to put too much of a downer on the conversation, but you know, in the genocide in Rwanda, one of the things which uh, helped enable it to happen was the fact that you sort of had Hutu or Tutsi written on your driver's license. So, you know, when there was this pogrom and, you know, you had millions of, of Rwandans killed, it was based on the fact that there was an identity uh, program by the government which was capturing ethnicity. So, yeah, I do think about what, re what our red lines are, what systems I don't want to build. And frankly, we don't build them. Um, you know, if we're going to be capturing fields like ethnicity, then 
I'm sure there's other companies out there which are going to be interested in doing that, but you know, we're not one of those. So I do think about it. I've never been asked to do anything which would be malicious uh, or where I see serious risk, but I don't think that, you know, you should be in this space if you don't think about that seriously um, to uh, probably get libeled. But, you know, I saw an instance of uh, Palantir um, in Africa where I could just tell that they didn't have the same approach towards standards that, that we did. Um, you know, Palantir are interested in selling threat assessment projects for security services to be able to evaluate what the risk is of citizens. We're not. These are not the kind of solutions that we're interested in building. So I think it's a fair question. I can guarantee you it's something we think a lot about. And I feel pretty com- comfortable that we're on the right side of that line. Yeah, and I appreciate your response to that. You know, that was just a curiosity, you know, derived from us speaking, you know, and I didn't really mean to put a damper on the lighthearted nature of the conversation either. Um, yeah, but you're right. You know, frankly, this is serious stuff. You know, you're building identity systems for nation states. Uh, it deserves to be dealt with seriously. And and I've noticed, you know, in the United States, and, you know, this is definitely a perk of Africa is that, you know, you can often build infrastructure faster. But, you know, in the United States, once something is in place, you know, a lot of these foundations and infrastructure are built on top of the precedent that was set. You know, so that's kind of my worry with cryptocurrency is, you know, if if it's not right in the beginning, uh, then we're just, you know, a whole world of bad things can happen as more things are built on top and you can't just remove the foundations that were set. You know, we still use TCP protocol from, uh, you know, the 1970s, you know, with no encryption. It's it's not a terrible protocol. It's uh, survived this length of time. But yeah, I take your point. So uh, I was listening to an AMA that you did about Atala Prism the other day, and I really appreciate that. Uh, You mentioned that Atala Prism is going to be open source. You know, do you see IOG, you know, just open sourcing Atala Prism? And for people on other continents or other countries, uh, do you think that they should adopt this technology? Or do you feel that over time, you know, this technology, you know, IOG will be pushing this technology or it's on, you know, people of those continents and of those countries to do it themselves and work with their own governments? Yeah, you know, our philosophy as a company is to hold no patents and, uh, you know, we want to open source everything. So Atala Prism will eventually be open sourced. At the moment, what we're figuring out is when and also trying to do the basic work of getting our documentation up to scratch, um, making sure like our sandbox environments look good. So there's a lot of work which needs to go into making this sort of ready for public use, but it is going to happen, right? That is part and parcel of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, do you feel that, you know, the public in their jurisdictions will have to, you know, push this technology along? Or do you feel that over time, you know, IOG is going to expand from Africa to other continents? Oh, I see. We're definitely going to do that. You know, we already have, you know, some stuff going on in Mongolia, in, in Georgia. What we're going to be doing is then putting together regional strategies for, you know, Southeast Asia and, you know, trying to do replicate some of the successes that we've had from, you know, the Africa model. Uh, and adapt them and apply them towards other regions. Because, of course, Southeast Asia is a very different environment from Africa. So, you know, we'll put together the good teams who've got the right expertise to be able to help lead those efforts. But, yeah, of course, you know, it's it's in scope. Um, just because we started with Africa doesn't mean we're going to end there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for that.
you know, what what is the five G or the five year plan for the rollout in Africa? I don't know why I want to say five G, but the five year plan. <laughs> <laughs> so for us, it's really going to have to be around handing over the torch from input output towards something that's more scalable. So, you know, we have these high level targets of we want 100 million users um, using Atala Prism. We want this many nation states using our system. We want a Cardano nation where all infrastructure, pardon me, is built on Cardano in a single country. Well, this isn't going to happen with just us. So what we need to have is, you know, uh, flourishing communities in all of the countries we want to operate. We need to have development companies in five, six different countries in Africa who can actually build the solutions based on the technology that we're putting in. So that that's really about it for us. If we want to scale, then we have to start engaging in a broader community and it can't just be us anymore. So yeah, that that's what it would be for me, a, th a thriving ecosystem of partners, developers, people doing BD in each of these countries who can really leverage our technology and make a dent in the billion unbanked, which is our mission statement. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I, I really think that is the model to achieve the exponential growth that you're looking for. It reminds me of World Mobile. You know, they, they can't do it themselves and they quickly realize that. So the only way uh, is to allow other people to help them in their mission. Um, Absolutely. And you know, just, sorry, just, to, just, sorry, just to sort of go back into that. And this is also why I think that, you know, some of the concepts around finance are so interesting, right? You know, 100 million, if you look at the size, basically, of the DeFi market, I think it's around like 100 billion or something. And then if you were to look at the size of the traditional finance market, you know, it's orders of magnitude bigger. So if we can start just using parts of, you know, the innovations that we've done to be able to impact into traditional industries, then you're going to see an explosion. And this is why, you know, I always go back to remittance. If you've got a zero cost transaction, transfer value, which is like uh, immediate, and is, as I say, you know, without really any, any cost associated with it, and you've got identity, well, you've just like destroyed all of the remittance market. If I can send money from one country to another, um, you know, with our identities on both sides, and that's immediate and that's free, well, yeah, that, that is what remittance is about. So we're starting to build the, the sort of foundational tools of all of these things. And, you know, when Hydra comes out, then we'll be ready for business. So that's where I start to see just ginormous amounts of value being transferred um, onto Cardano. And that's sort of a global game-changing concept. So that's what I'm excited for. Awesome. Awesome. Um, you know, is there anything that the community can do to help, you know, IOG's mission in Africa? Yeah, so you can apply to be an ambassador. Um, we're going to be relaunching or refocused on the ambassador program for Africa. Uh, we don't have enough ambassadors. Uh, very soon, we're going to have these community events, long promised community events running in all of these different African countries. Uh, we're looking to put together a bespoke funding vehicle outside of Catalyst to support early stage startups. Hopefully you'll hear more about that in the Cardano conference. Uh, now you've got the Catalyst proposal. So what we're going to need is to start pulling together these people into an ecosystem and making sure that everyone's supporting each other. I'm going to try to put the sort of guardrails around that and sort of explain on paper how you can participate in all of this. But yeah, I, I'm really sort of looking for this to go exponential and uh, 
and yeah, it takes it takes a village, as they say. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I was asking. So that would be separate from the Cardano Ambassador Program. This is really like a Cardano Africa Ambassador Program. Um, I won't say that because then I'll upset the CF. So no, of course we want to work with the within the current program. Um, so you know, I'm going to be trying to exactly to sort of help help the CF reach out to and, and you know find these ambassadors. Um, but in the short term, you know, I'm going to be focused on spaces where people who want to help can immediately talk. Um, but of course, we want to align 100% with CF. They have an, an increasingly important role in the ecosystem going forward. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you know, a few days ago on Twitter, you were talking about a project called Empower. You, know, you said that you're Ooh, very, yeah. very interested in it. Can you tell us a little more? Yeah, I just love these kind of things, right? It's why I got so excited by World Mobile. So Empower is all about building sustainable housing in Africa, right? Using cryptocurrencies and uh, well, at least enabling crypto to help finance that um, and also slightly gamify it. So people sort of get NFTs for the social good that they've created. So this is part of my broader RealFi strategy. You know, what's RealFi? RealFi is all about reducing the frictions that prevent cryptocurrency and blockchain liquidity from actually having real world impact. So DeFi is borrow crypto to buy more crypto to make more money so you earn more crypto. RealFi is use your crypto to be able to finance an actual loan for someone to be able to go and build a house or increase the size of their farm and an actual yield on that because you've created more real world value that gets repaid to you. Uh, so there's many different parts of RealFi. As I say, it's more of a toolbox than a single product. But if your cryptocurrency or blockchain project has got some form of real world impact, you're probably within the RealFi, the RealFi space. Um, and you know, DeFi is a subset of RealFi. We use DeFi Lego blocks to help make these things happen. Um, and, and power is just a great example of, as I say, a real fight project. So yeah, I'm excited. Um, it's a great team as well. I actually helped them close their seed round. Um, so I'm super excited for, for them to, to get started. Yeah, me as well. I've had them on the podcast. I, I really do like their project, but I want to talk a little bit more about this, you know, this idea of real fight. You know, I, I started hearing this a lot more, or I really, the first time I heard it, was after you know the U.S. government passed the you know the bill through the Senate and then onto the House. I heard Charles mention this idea of real fi. So, do you think like you know macroeconomically yeah. the space is shifting you know towards working with governments and this idea of real finance instead of you know as you said just buying more crypto and inflating the prices of these assets? You know, is cryptocurrency shifting towards a focus on government adoption and real world use for this value instead of what it has been in the past? Yeah, so if you just think about the scale of the opportunity, of course, if we start to be able to think about, you know, real world markets, um, like, as I say, remittance or housing or normal lending markets, these are orders of magnitude greater than the traditional DeFi space, which we've sort of limited ourselves to. So do I believe we'll end up in real fight? Of course, this is where the markets are. So in my view, you know, crypto will sort of start to eat into these real world value chains 
and you know then everything will become real fi uh so at the moment you know we're dealing with DeFi. it's a subset of this real fi space and as we succeed we should be moving more into these traditional markets so yeah i think that that's the direction that we're going um, I think we have to be careful to make sure it's clear that this doesn't mean there's more, more government control or that, you know, we've given up the power. Uh, no, it's a natural function of the technology being successful and being able to be used in more applications. Yeah, it's I mean, it's very important, you know, for the technology to work with governments or you're just not going to get the users and the nation adoption, you know. Do you feel that Cardano stands in a good place, you know, f- as we trend towards this? you know, to actually adopt identity and, you know, is Cardano a good place to do that in a short amount of time? Well, I hope so, since I coined the word, the word. So if, (laughs) if we can't do it, then, you know, I really don't know. I don't know what we're doing. So, you know, a hundred percent, you know, I think that, I think that, you know, we've always had a focus more on where we're going with this technology. You know, what's, what's the end of the path that, that we're choosing to tread uh, so I do think we think about it. It's the reason why we built Atala Prism. It's the reason why, um, you know, we're starting to do, um, you know, SME lending in Kenya to better understand what the bottlenecks are. Um, it's the reason why I'm here in Africa. So 100%, you know, we have a focus on this. Ultimately, it's a philosophy choice. We believe philosophically that this is where the market will go. Other blockchains may have different views. Um, and only, only time, time will tell, really, who's, who's right. in the right. Yeah, well, I appreciate that response. Um, I want to close this out in you know a lighthearted way. You know, John, you know what you and IOG are doing is inspiring to all of us, and uh, it's really inspired me to do what I do every day. And my question for you is, you know, what or who uh, inspired you to do what you do every day? Uh, how do I answer this without saying that I think Charles had a hand in it? Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, from from the way I sort of like got involved in this project, there were a number of different influences on me. Um, you know, I studied politics, philosophy and economics, the economic side. I was always interested in, you know, how how emerging economies grow. Um, so all of the literature that I read around that definitely framed the way in which, you know, I started to see the world. So, you know, I sort of give a, a lot of shout outs to a lot of the economists that I sort of followed uh, and, uh, and respected. That being said, um, there was a eureka moment for me, and it was when I watched Charles's TEDx talk uh, at Bermuda, and that for me was just like you know absolutely click that for a lot of these sort of intractable economic growth problems that everyone talks about, that potentially technology could actually get us some of the way there. Uh, so that's that's sort of why I got involved in the project and, and got started. Um, you know, maybe in terms of other inspirations. You know, when you work and live in a place like Addis or Ethiopia, there's so many people who are really trying to make a difference. And sometimes it's naive, sometimes it's misplaced. Um, but there's a lot of people who really care. So, yeah, honestly, on a daily basis, I meet people who are like, you know, no one's forcing you to do this. Uh, and frankly, you know, that sort of helps you get up out of bed every day and and work, work your work your utmost. Nice. Yeah, it's it's inter- it's interesting to hear your perspective on that and hearing that you know when you wake up there are a lot of people trying to make a difference. You know, where where I was from in the United States, there weren't very many people trying to make a difference at all. You know, that is often in the United States thought of as as naive and you know to me, 
you know, IOG and, and, you know, the work that you've been doing is the first time that I've seen people actually trying to uh, make a difference, you know, and that's what inspired me. I really appreciate you coming on today, John. Uh, is there anything that you would like to say, you know, before we hop off here, anything that we missed? Uh, just to say that the Cardano Summit's coming up, I think September the 25th. So uh, I'll be doing more information, more updates on what we do, what we're doing in Africa, where we're going, and also hopefully some real tangible stuff about how you can get involved, where to sign up, etc. Awesome. Are you going to be there in Wyoming? Ah uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick stick to the Africa side. So the Cape Town event is where we're doing uh, the sort of Africa HQ. So I'll be there. Awesome, awesome. I'm happy to hear it. And you know, if you guys enjoyed this podcast, uh, make sure you let us know down below. Click that like button. Click the notification bell. Uh, if you made it to the end, please type John O'Connor down below to show us that you did make it to the end. I appreciate you guys tuning in to each and every podcast, and I hope you have a great rest of your week.